0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and happy Friday, everybody. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. One of the things we talked about this week was Julio Teo. Yep. Uh, Can I just tell you, I feel like this episode ran a little bit long, and even so, I feel like I left out so much stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he had a lot more conflicts that we didn't go into and arguments. There's a big argument that he had with Larco that ended up with them both having to give testimony about it because they got in a fight over a a piece of property that Larco had owned and Teo thought the museum had taken possession of and there were some things stored in it and it was a big, essentially like a public brawl once again. He kept getting in these very public fights, which makes me nervous just thinking about it, but... Mm-hmm. um but he was really passionate. One thing that I I found a little dismaying. Again, we're we're dealing with like English language only sources because I am not fluent in Spanish, um, and there is not a whole lot of mention of his family life. Right, uh, we know he got married, and we know that uh, he and his wife had children together that did not all survive to adulthood. I don't think. But even in the the things I read, the numbers shift around. Like I. Read several that said they had four children, one died, and another that said they had six and I'm like, that's new, um, but we don't really know and i I feel like most of his personal life is is kind of blurred and a little bit obscured because his work was so important both to him and to his country and to archaeology in general. um I also had a very i don't know if it was quaint. But there was a moment where I was looking through U.S. newspaper articles about him. And one of them had anglicized his name to Julius. And they still spelled his last name the way he spelled it, Teo. But I just imagined every American reader calling him Julius Tello when he was in the United States. Because I'm sure it happened a million times. But <laughs> it's one of those tricky problems. Yeah. But the thing I love the most about him is his approach to solving problems. <laughs> like, oh, my job is at the whim of political moves. I will become a politician. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I can make legislation. Oh, I can't do this expedition unless I am associated with the sci- with the college of letters. Well, I'll just throw together a thesis really quickly and present it. That's not a problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> I loved that. I loved it.
1: I felt conflicted about some of his story. Like, I felt conflicted about the big public fights. There was a lot of that. Oh, they're rough. Uh, But also, any time I'm in a museum at this point, which doesn't happen because there's a pandemic, right? If I were to be in a museum at this point, like, any time I'm looking at an artifact that is not from the place that the museum is, I'm always like, where did you get this and how? Yeah, And, like, the the people who were criticizing him, being like, "We're afraid you're sending our artifacts away," like he was, <laughs> like yeah, a hundred percent, yeah. So it's uh, it's one of those things where it's like a slightly different nuance than, say, uh, a U.S. archaeological team showing up somewhere and doing a dig and taking a bunch of artifacts
0: away, but still one that just like troubles me a bit. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things I think about, it came up when we did the episode that you had researched on the Elgin marbles, where it's like, this really stinks. They got taken away, but they also may not have survived if they hadn't been taken away. Uh, I think in his mind, that was part of it. Peru was so constantly like, I mean, it comes up in this episode, the museum would shut down and no one would be taking care of things and sometimes for years at a time and then it would reopen, but it was at the whim of the government and I think in his eyes, he was like, sure, places like Harvard have plans and, like, they they are stable and they will take care of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also did see it as kind of an ambassadorial effort, right? People sure. will learn about Peru from me, a Peruvian, even though he's not always there to interpret those artifacts. Um, and like I said, as evidenced by the fact that I'm sure people were calling him Julius Tello, uh, there was going to be some some lost information in that. So it, it is, it's very tricky. Uh I mean, he was also doing some of that to fund more excavation work. Right, right. So it, it very much becomes about, like, what moral and ethical concessions are you willing to make for what you perceive to be the greater good, even if that's not what everyone else agrees is the greater good. This is why humans are so complicated. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. So we talked finally about Emily du Châtelet this week.
1: Yeah. I You mentioned that you had been working on it for a long time. We had talked about her at multiple points over, I feel like, more than a year. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes when we are talking about doing uh, a, a custom episode as part of a sponsorship, which this was not one of, there will be a theme that we're brainstorming around, and I remember her coming up as a theme around people who were described as people's muses because she was described as Voltaire's muse. But of course, having her story stand on its own
0: instead of being like Voltaire's muse, uh, I like that better. Me too. Uh, and I, uh, it's it's a little bit tricky because so much that's written about her is in context of her relationship with him. Because it is important, and they did, like I said in the episode, I feel like they drove each other to new levels of development of, of each of their individual works. But it also kind of contributes to that problem that she wasn't anything before him, and then she became a thing. And it's like, mm, no, she was already doing some really interesting stuff. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> One of the things that I didn't mention in the episode, and I'll give people a quick heads up, it's a little adult. Um, Her writing on women's sexual liberation is like... Two hundred years ahead of its time. Oh yeah, because she's very like, uh, it should be fine for women to enjoy sex. It should be absolutely great for people to have body positivity and sex positivity. And if you are with someone and you're not getting that, you should move on. It's not worth staying. Like she's very completely like, this is I don't I don't know why you would ever stay in a relationship that wasn't enjoyable to you. Uh, which is pretty interesting because we don't. Yeah. Again in the 1730s. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: one of the things that I really like about her is how it really does seem like when her romantic relationships ended, like, sh- they continued to be fond of each other and in and, and, and one another's lives. Because, like, I know for my own personal history... If I break up with somebody, it's because I did not like who they were as a person anymore, or else they did not like who I was as a person anymore. And, like, there has not been a continued affectionate relationship in the vast majority of cases. And for her to have been like, yeah, Voltaire and I are not really together anymore. We still live together. We still do all this academic work. It's not a problem.
0: Right. Well, and even Voltaire is said, you know, those long 20 page letters back and forth with Richelieu, Mm -hmm. he is said to have been a little suspicious initially about them uh, and then saw one and was like, oh, no, you're literally just talking about physics. Okay, I'm not. It's fine. Um, (laughs) Right. uh, Not that he should have had to have read it. But, um, yeah, he he realized how completely that was she was not carrying on any sort of additional romantic relationship. while she was with him which i really loved that she would just write for 20 pages about philosophy and physics with her ex pretty great um <laughs> i um i it's there's an interesting aspect of researching her and one of the reasons it took me so long there are a couple of quite good books about her Um, one is that David Badanis book that we mentioned. It's called Passionate Minds, and it's actually about her and Voltaire. And then there is another one by Judith Zinser, which came out just after that one that is just about Emily. And it's interesting how the two of them perceived certain aspects of her life differently. Mm -hmm. David Badanis, in many ways, sees her to my mind, this isn't a criticism of his work, in an almost romanticized view. Like, there tend to be more polarizing approaches to her father loved her, her mother was mean to her, she was amazing, and not everyone saw it. Whereas uh, Zinser recognizes that she's clearly a genius, but is a little less definitive in some of those, where it's like, no, her mom might not have been that mad about it. She just knew, like this was not going to lead to a path that she could sustain as an adult. Sure. Um, and so it's it's just an interesting comparison. You know, that's always the, to me, one of the most interesting and trickiest parts of interpreting history is that there is interpretation in the mix, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the way two people can read one historical document, like one letter that someone wrote another person and come away with very different views on what it was actually communicating is, to me, part of the, the marvelous, sometimes frustrating, but often really illuminating puzzle of history and its research. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you have a beautiful Friday and a beautiful weekend, uh, whatever form that takes for you, and we will see you right back here next week.
1: Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio.